We ready? Yeah. Well, good morning. Welcome to this morning's service. Um, you have a bulletin. There's uh, several announcements uh, to go over. Uh, first of all, the uh, women's retreat is October 27 through the 29th. Um, so Becky, is that the one we need to have her ha have you talk to? But anyway, uh, speak with Becky or Priscilla, one of the one of the folks, to uh, get signed up. I think the sign-up sheet's in the back or in the front. Uh, women's Bible studies uh, starting up Tuesday. Uh, so, ladies that have been attending that, uh, please turn out for that. Um, one other thing I want to just uh, mention is we are making tremendous progress on the building next door. Uh, we have the kitchen and the bathrooms and the nursery. The nursery is almost complete. A uh, few things still left in the uh, bathrooms to get those complete. And the kitchen, uh, they're going to start uh, working up on the finish next week. Uh, the, after that, it is the landscaping and parking lot out front. That's going to be the, the biggest thing we have left to do and uh, would ask you to, to pray for uh, the meetings that are going to be taking place at the city to uh, have them uh, go ahead and grandfather us in on the initial plan, uh, plan that was laid out for the site. Once they do that, then we have to go ahead to uh, finish up the front. Uh, so keep it in prayer. It's uh, been a long haul to get the building to where it is, and we're very close to completion. Uh, so keep that in mind in your prayers, please. Let's open our Bibles to uh, J uh, James chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. And it reads, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And let's bow our heads and go to prayer. Father, we thank you for this day, the day that you've made, and we thank you for the blessings you have already given us and uh, are in store Father, we uh, thank you for the privilege we have of being able to gather together freely and openly and worship you. We thank you for our pastor, pastor teacher, that uh, for his uh, message that uh, you placed on his heart as he uh, brings us your word. And Father, again, we think of the uh, building project next door. Uh, we're close. We just pray, Father, that uh, you'll be with those that are in charge of, at the city that uh, have say over uh, the next step concerning uh, the completion. So, Father, we just uh, pray that uh, uh, Javier uh, Alvarez, who is approaching them, uh, would have success in uh, having us uh, proceed. So, Father, we thank you for this day. We pray for those that are sick, those that are ill. We just pray that they would indeed uh, be healed. Uh, as your word says, and uh, again, uh, you are our salvation, and we thank you for that. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. He is our salvation indeed. Good morning, church. Would you stand with us?
consider all the worlds I hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy path throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul.
Jesus now Holding nothing back I'm holding nothing back I surrender I surrender Good morning. Good morning. Oh, doing well, it sounds like. Uh, children, you guys can go to Children's Church. It is, uh, it's been a little bit of a long haul here, temperature-wise, but it's been nice this last week, right? Highs in the 80s. Been good. So we're going to make their way. There he goes. Guys, before we begin, we're going to be in 1 John, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, that'd be a good thing to do. Um, As Bill pointed out, we we do, uh, we're getting right down to the, to just the details of this building over here, and there's still all sorts of little things uh, that with low-level bureaucracies pop up, right? So we're, trying, we're going to pray for that also, in addition to some of the health issues that we have uh, in our body that we all need to be praying for, um, as well as just for our church. Uh, because uh, while the world is tumultuous in El Paso Bible Church, is handling it pretty well. Things are pretty nuts still, aren't they? Uh, 
<clears throat> right? You'd let me know if you weren't handling it well, I hope. But um, I don't get calls all day, every day, telling me that everybody's hair is on fire all the time, at least not any more than normal. So I'm hoping that you're, you're, you're doing it well. But right now, the world's kind of burning, right, in a lot of ways. So we need to pray for continued perseverance, for holding fast, as we learned about in First Thessalonians, and also for the health concerns that we have. So we're going to do that, and I hope that you'll join with me as we do it. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege and the honor and the joy that it is to come and worship together, to be able to gather in this place, uh, something that we have frequently prayed for, thankfully, for the freedom to do so, uh, which we have in some measure experienced <laughs> criticism for in these past few years. And so we understand truly the blessing that it is in ways that we maybe haven't before. Uh, but Father, we do pray for continued perseverance and endurance for those of us who call up House of Bible Church our home, our local body, which we fellowship with and worship with and live with. And we, we thank you for your blessings upon us, for the peace in the midst of tumult that we have experienced largely. Father, we do want to remember uh, the health things that have, health situations that arise in a body of, of people in a, that live in this world. And Father, we, we know that you are, in fact, the sovereign healer and power behind all wellness. And Father, we, we ask for that health to be restored. If it be your will, Father, we know that we don't see everything that you see. We, we don't understand everything that you are doing or the purposes that you have, but we know that you have good in store for those who love you. And we are standing here today proclaiming to you that we are those who love you. And we ask for these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. So here we are in 1 John chapter 1. This is uh, an important chapter and chap important verses. Um, the topic, as we've talked about in the first few sessions, the first few messages in this series, is fellowship. Right? And, and fellowship is a means to something. It is not simply an end in itself, though it is a pleasant experience, right? Fellowship. It is because fellowship is the key to fullness of joy, right? That's what John tells us in verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete, so that you can. We're joyful now, but what we're looking for is the fullness of joy as we understand the things that are written in this book. And it's joy for us, for we, for this category of people, the writer, including the audience as well, all together. Uh, we understand, right? And if you haven't been here for the past few messages, I would encourage you, I don't usually do this, I know it's available to you, but you should go probably and listen to the first couple of messages in this series so that we understand the distinctions that we're making that not everybody makes and that I think are important. Um, and one of the most basic is that fellowship is not identical to justification. Uh, most of the New Testament deals with a category of issues that we would call a fellowship issue and not justification. The way that Pastor Josh normally says that is most of the Bible is not about how to get to heaven when you die. 
You know that, right? I mean, like, just if you've read the New Testament, you know that a lot of it is mostly how to treat other people, right? Yes? Yeah, I mean, most of it is very pragmatic, pragmatic and practical in that regard. It's about fellowship issues rather than justification issues, right? First John is an epistle. It is a letter written to address issues that a local body was experiencing, and, and, and just in the first few verses, we have to recognize, and we must recognize, that fellowship is not identical to my identity in Christ on, the, on a very simple basis, and that is that my identity in Christ is not changeable. It is not mutable. It does not shift. It is unalterable. It is absolute. It is unaffected by my behavior. Praise Jesus, Right? unaffected by my behavior entirely or anyone else's behavior. It is permanent and perfect, and it is guaranteed by Christ's promise. And if I know that I have eternal life, period, the fellowship is not described that way here. First person plural pronouns, we, us, Right? John and his audience are included in the way that he describes fellowship issues here in the first part. John includes himself in the description of a, of a variable experience, right? That's what he's done. Fellowship is something that we want. It's something that we want because we want joy. Now, aside from some very particular psychological disorders, and I do consider them disorders, everybody I've met has wanted joy in their life, right? It's like when, when Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, and you're always going to get one guy in the bag of the pew, well, my uncle so-and-so hated himself. Okay. It's a proverb. It's a gnomic statement, right? Nobody ever hated his own flesh, right? We all want joy, and we want the most joy we can have. We want the fullness of joy, and so we, we need to understand what John is saying is something that we want. We're all in agreement. We know something else. We know that we, we do not always have a fullness of joy in your experience, right? Y'all are going to make me feel like I'm the only one. We know that, right? We know that some days we wake up without the fullness of joy that we may have experienced even prior in our lives, that we're not always receiving the benefits of this fellowship that's described in 1 John, chapter 1 specifically. This is something that has symptoms, and the main symptom of not experiencing fellowship is a lack of joy in our lives, and by extension in our church, and then the church at large, and we don't have to look very far in the history of the local churches in this area and the big C church in the world to realize that they really do need this reiterated to them. This church has not been a joyful place the past few years in a lot of places, right? I mean, seriously, right? Y'all all know that. It's tumultuous. 
We're, we, I'm not joking when I praise the Lord that y'all don't call me all day, every day, telling me how your hair is on fire a different way today, how the world is assaulting you. I'm thankful for y'all's perspective and your faithfulness to the, to the Word and walking by the Spirit in your life so that you are not overcome, so that you are not lacking in that way. I'm thankful for that, but we know that. That a lack of joy indicates a lack of attention, at least, to the principles of fellowship. But I think we are, we're not reminded enough in a lot of the church culture out there in this world, you know, what, what some of my friends kind of disparagingly call the daddy God culture. You've heard that, right? No. In a lot of, lot of televised services, every prayer begins with daddy God. I don't necessarily have a problem with the idea of Abba incorporating daddy, right? But it, it usually, often, ends up with a, with a prayer that is approaching God on some different terms than what he presents, right? We're, we just don't, we focus on, on God that way and we forget the principle in 1 John when John says, listen, you need to understand something. Fellowship is the key to fullness of joy. And it's fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. You need to understand who God is. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. That's who God is. He is morally perfect, right? We said we're not, when we say God is light, we're not going down the start church of Star Trek, right? We're not doing some stupid philosophical thing. It's a metaphor. It does not mean that God is literally photons, right? He's not a, a cosmic photon torpedo or whatever, right? God is light. It's a metaphor. God is light. He is an individual. He is a person with personality, with emotions, with character qualities, right? Identifiable things. But all of it as a package is morally perfect. He does only what is right, what is good, what is just, and he never errs. He never errs. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then John tells us that if we're the same, if we walk in the light, if we make morally perfect, upright, just choices, then we walks in the light. Be just my luck, it would uh, fall out of my truck window or something as I cut somebody off down the highway. I'd pick it up. Just be how it is. He said, well, that's the principle, though. Were you to do that? Yeah. You would have fellowship. You would. We don't do that. We fail daily, hourly, I'd, I wouldn't want somebody to keep a tally of the number of ways in which I sin by the time I make it to teach Sunday school on Sunday morning, every Sunday. So we've got a problem. We want joy. We all agreed with that. We want fullness of joy. So we need fellowship with a being who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. Even as... As believers, the we, the us here, we don't, we don't walk in the light. Because remember, the walking around light, the decisions that we make, the actions that we take, the words that we say, the words that we left unsaid, 
thought, word, and deed, omission, and commission. Those are the principles. Verse 8 continues, right? If we say, we, first person plural, John and his audience, were we to say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now that's a particular structure there. It is a third class condition. It is the future more probable. In other words, we should look at it in our lives and we should expect people to tell us to tell us, no, I'm, I have no sin right now. Believers. Right? We should expect that. That's the future more probable. That's in the heiress. It's kind of expressing kind of a gnomic principle. Should we have ever said that? If we ever said it any time, in the present, we're deceiving ourselves about that. There's two, two parts to the structure here. We're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we say that, first conditional statement. That's why this whole sermon is called, the, the whole ver, all of the verses that we're looking at here are conditional statements, if. Or should we say, if we say this, or if we do that. If we ever say that, we are, we're lying. We sin in thought and word and deed by omission and by commission. And even further than that, I think we sin in so many ways that we don't even recognize it is, it is shocking sometimes for me to have to reveal to somebody that they have sinned against their spouse and they have no idea that they've done it. Or against somebody in the church and they have no idea that they've done it. And then they'll stomp their foot sometimes and tell me, I have no sin. I didn't sin in that situation. Well, now, <laughs> let's be cautious with that. Deceiving yourself, most likely. If we say that, we're lying to ourselves. And the truth is not in us. In other words, we're not getting any benefit from an accurate assessment of what's going on. You want to know what's really going on in life? We were talking about that today, right? With somebody here after Sunday school, I was talking about that. And I said, you know, uh, they asked me if I listened to the president's speech. And I said, no, because I want to listen to who's actually in charge. I don't know where that person is making speeches. But I don't listen to him. It's evident that he's not telling me what's actually going on. You want to know the truth of a situation, don't you? Even if it's a rough one, even if it's a harsh one, we would say, we would admit, usually. So we shouldn't say that. Something similar that you hear people say sometimes is sin doesn't matter. It's in this, kind of the same category <laughs> because John says it does. We've talked about that one before. It's just a, another way of dismissing the, the issue of what sin does in the life of a believer. So verse 8 tells us, should we say that we're deceiving ourselves? The truth is not in us. Verse 8, um, verse 9, excuse me, I, shouldn't, I just did verse 8. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Another third-class condition, another if, future more probable, we should expect to see this also, something that we would anticipate. It's not strictly a hypothetical, no more than us sinning is a hypothetical. It's not setting up a hypothetical. It's something you should expect in reality, but John is not citing a specific instance. He's just saying this is how things are. You should expect to encounter that. You're going to sin. Yes? Right? That, that's the time. You're going to sin. Something we should expect. So if we confess, confess is a, a simple word. It means essentially, so we got a lot of teenagers in here. It's a compound word. The first part of it is homo. Go ahead. Chuckle. It means same. It's a Greek word. It means same. I didn't get any chuckles. Y'all are so mature. Our teenagers, so mature. Angela, now you weren't supposed to laugh that hard at that one now. Homo legeo, to say the same. To agree, maybe, would be an okay way to say it. To say the same thing. To agree. Compound word, to say the same thing about our sin in this context. To say the same thing about our sin that God is, because He's the standard. He's the one who is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all, meaning He's morally perfect. So He is the definition of sin. Excuse me, the def- he gives the definition of sin. He's not the definition of sin. He's the standard by which we determine what sin is. The one who is light. Now that becomes a, an issue in our culture in ways that maybe you didn't realize. Because people run around this country these days in the form of a riot and hold people hostage until they salute Black Lives Matter or some other thing, or that they must justify their behavior. We don't confess according to the standard of what the Supreme Court says is legal or what the federal government says is permissible because they say all sorts of things that are sins or not. They're not the standard. Could you say that about any single portion of the government anywhere in the world? The government is light, and in them there is no darkness at all. Now, you'd be a lunatic. So we don't, we, we basically, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. When we sin, we're not worried about what the government says. We're not worried about whether it's illegal or legal. It doesn't even enter the discussion. We confess our sins to be sins. To say the same thing, right? I, I heard recently of... Not local, but a regional pastor, okay? Because in some of my side activities, I run into some odd ducks. I ran into an odd duck a couple weeks ago, and she was a pastor by title. And in one of her messages, she said something to you. I was talking about a miracle. Y'all believe in miracles, don't you? Yeah, I believe in miracles. And she was talking about a miracle. I forget which one it was, but she doesn't believe any of them are actually miracles. They're just myths. But she was charitable about it, you know. She said, well, but some people do believe these are really miracles. I don't think it really matters, she said. I think it just matters that what we believe, we truly believe. If I say something like that, I have been taken hostage by communists, and you need to send me to be rescued. 
You can't really believe anything that isn't accurate anyway. You're just deceived. That's not the same thing. It's, I mean, it's insane. I beg to differ. It does really matter what we believe, and it doesn't only matter that we are sincere in our belief. It matters a lot what we believe. It matters a lot what we believe about our sin, as believers especially. And it matters what we say about our sin. And we need to be saying the same things as God says about them. Right? We need to confess those sins. Now, what confession is not, this is important, uh, because a lot of people have a, an odd view of what confession looks like. They think it includes an emotive response. That if you're not crushed to tears by confession of your sin, that it's not valid. Or if you don't go into a little closet with a little screen behind it with another human being that you haven't truly confessed your sins, that's not here. Confession is not a motive. Uh, confession is not being done to another human being in this context. Confession is not even asking for forgiveness. That's not here either. Because a lot of people will build up a, they'll throw up a straw man here and say, well, you're just, you're just making believers ask God for forgiveness all the time. And that's not what this says. And it's not what I'm saying. It's not asking for forgiveness. We'll get there in a second. Confession isn't, like I said, not going to the right closet in church and laying out all your misdeeds. It's not validated by certain prayers or certain promises afterwards. There's no script and there's no other humans involved. Simply agreeing with God that our sin is sin. Agreeing with God that it is what he says it is. So if we confess, conditional state, hit the mute button, but y'all wish you could do that. If we confess our sins, that's a pretty particular reference there. Let me ask you, you guys sinners? That's a, that's a statement, isn't it? It's a philosophical kind of statement. You are liable to sin. That's what that means. That is not what John is saying here. If we confess that we are sinners, right? That's very ambiguous. See, if I punch somebody in the nose, now it might not be a sin, but if, say it is, punch somebody in the nose, and it's a sin. And I say to that, sir, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith. We don't have a Mr. Smith in here, do we? Okay. I'm sorry, Mr. Smith. You know I'm a sinner. How sorry am I? Not that sorry. Has a different impact, right? They say, Mr. Smith, uh, I confess it, you know, <laughs> it was a sin to crack your nose open. It's so interesting confessing that I'm the sin and sins. The individual actions 
We need to confess our individual actions, and that's important here. It's a particular reference. We can talk about the problem of the problem of sin, and that's different. Sins in the plural are the individual acts, the thoughts, the words, the deeds, the omissions, and the commissions. Uh, and this is, by the way, I, and y'all, I hope you're getting sick of this because that means you've got it nailed down. But I'm going to tell you again, this is why this can't be a gospel presentation to an unbeliever. Another reason why. Not just the first person plural pronouns. Not just because fellowship it cannot be the same as my identity in Christ. But he's saying that if we confess our individual acts of sin, then he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. What is that saying about how you should share the gospel with somebody? If you go to an unbeliever and say that if you're able to make a list of all the ways you've sinned, the individual actions, and if you're able to confess all of those, then, then you can get justified. Then you can get saved. Then you get to go to heaven when you die. What does Scripture say about how, do you, how you go to heaven when you die? believe in Jesus. There is, in fact, we have rejected multiple portions of multiple curriculums over my tenure at El Paso Bible Church because they make confess an integral portion of their gospel presentation, and we reject that. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture is an unbeliever said, confess all your sins, all your sinful actions against God and man and thought, word and deed, omission and commission, and then you can get saved. That's heresy. Utter and complete heresy, and it is heresy to make First John say that. This is why it matters that you understand that fellowship is not justification, and this is not a gospel presentation to be used with an unbeliever. And I hope you get sick of it, because I'm going to continue to make the line drawn every single time it needs to be drawn because one of the key problems in, Christen, in Christianity right now is a failure to distinguish between what gets you to heaven when you die and what is how to treat other people and live in the local church in your temporal life, which is the vast majority of it. There is one, one thing that you do to go to heaven when you die, and that's to trust in Christ. And there is one way to validate that you're going there, and that is to assess whether I've trusted in Christ. But there is a place in our lives to confess the individual acts of sin that we have committed in our life. It's faithful and righteous to forgive them. Part of the problem is we don't do a real good job with what forgive means. As I see it, and I, hold, I do hold this loosely, because I was wrong the one time. Y'all remember. I don't, but y'all remember. I'm sure some, somebody remember. That's a joke. <laughs> I say it enough and people start thinking it's not a joke anymore. That's okay. But forgive a fee of me here, generally speaking, is used of fellowship issues. It is not used for your identity in Christ. It is not used 
to describe what happens when you, you receive freedom from the judicial penalty for your sin. That's more appropriately what we would call propitiation, right? So that's why I have Bill read the verse from James, right? And that's, that's the word forgive. Isn't that an interesting couple of verses? Call the elders and they'll anoint with all the prayer he'll be healed. And if he has committed any sins, they'll be forgiven him. Well, that's a man in the church. He's a believer calling his church leadership. What does it mean at that point that in this process, that man is sick? And if he has sinned, be forgiving. Is that something an unbeliever would do? Call the elders of the church to have them come in and pray for them when they're sick? That, that's not, I've never had that happen. I've had some unbelievers come in looking for the holy water. I don't know how many times in here. Said, man, we got plenty of water. I can put it in a bowl outside. That will set it apart. But that's as good as we got. That's kind of how forgive is used. And we can go through umpteen numbers. I say forgiveness doesn't have to do with the judicial penalty for sin. It is what we would call extrajudicial. Not on top of a judicial penalty, but outside of the jurisdiction of a judicial penalty. It's extrajudicial. It is a process for believers, and by definition, believers have been relieved of the penalty, the judicial penalty for sin. Death, right? Did y'all understand those words? Sorry. Extrajudicial. You've been relieved of the judicial penalty for sin. You are no longer under the sentence of death for sin. None of you who believe in Jesus Christ. That is, a lot of people describe that as a courtroom scene, and that may be appropriate. That's why I use the word extrajudicial. Forgiveness does not take place in a courtroom. You realize that, right? I've spent more time than I care about, care to, in a courtroom various times. Let me explain to you, the court does not deal with forgiveness. It does not care about forgiveness. It either convicts or it acquits. It does not have flexibility to forgive. Y'all have been in a courtroom once or twice, right? I mean, even traffic court, there's no forgiveness. It doesn't take place in a courtroom. It's not the purview of a justice system. It's extrajudicial. Courts don't forgive. Of course, we, know, we, got, we talked about this, I think, in Sunday school a little bit. You know, here in El Paso, they're, they're supposed to either convict or acquit, but apparently mostly what they do is dismiss, right? District attorney has just been throwing out hundreds of violent uh, cases because they were too disorganized to get them hurt. So technically, I guess there's a third category. They acquit, they convict, or they dismiss. But they don't forgive. No one got forgiven there. That's not their job. Forgiveness is extrajudicial. In other words, God is not sitting behind the judgment seat there, the bar, uh, whatever the, what they call that, the bench. That's what, not the bar, the bench. This is not God sitting behind the bench making a judgment on the judicial penalty for sin because nobody in this context is subject to the judicial penalty for sin. It's the we and the us, right? First person plural pronouns. 
But forgiveness is at issue here for believers. And the way John is explaining it, it is a restoration to fellowship, which we want, right? Because fellowship is the key to fullness of joy. And we know that we don't walk in the light, that in fact we have deceived ourselves at some point, probably, future more probable, and we probably will again. So we have a problem. We need joy, so we want fellowship, but we can't get there even as believers walking around on our own. We, we need a mechanism for fellowship here that we can't supply on our own. What is, I mean, what is it if it's not justification, it's not my identity in Christ, and it is variable? My understanding, at least at the bare bones, is that fellowship is, for the believer, the freedom to live a self-disciplined life as opposed to an externally disciplined life. Does that make sense? In other words, you're not living a life under God's discipline for these unconfessed sins. Now, some people don't think God disciplines believers. Okay, let's back up. Does God love his children? Does, is he a good father? Does a good father care at least, at minimum, how his children treat his other children? I think that's fair, it's basic. So God disciplines his children, right? That's a scriptural principle, especially if they mistreat each other. Like, I don't worry about other people's children at Walmart, right? Do you? Like, if you're going around spanking other people's kids, stop. <laughs> don't do that. Those are, that's not your problem. But all of God's children are significant, and he loves them, and he disciplines them. The reason you discipline somebody again as a review is so that they do not feel the natural consequences of their actions when it comes to sin. What is the natural consequence of sin? Death. Generally speaking in Scripture, that's physical death. Certainly. I think that's what Romans is talking about. The wages of sin is death. So you discipline your child, ultimately, so the child doesn't what? Die. Children try hard to die, don't they? They need to be disciplined. They need to be loved. We've got a couple of people that just had children. You guys are no exceptions. Your children are cute now, but they'll try to die one day, and you'll have to discipline them to prevent it. They'll try hard, most likely. Most of them do. Fellowship is the freedom to self-discipline as opposed to experiencing discipline from the Lord, as I understand it. So when I agree with God, yes, that was a sin, I am at the point that God's discipline is designed to put me. So now I don't have to be disciplined, I can now self-discipline. I have exhibited that characteristic in that one area. Does that make sense? That's, that's when you stop disciplining your children, right? At some point, my children get jobs and they start paying some of their own bills. You know what I do? 
they no longer have a bedtime because they have exhibited the ability to discipline themselves and get up and go to work and go to school and to pay bills and to fix their own cars. They still live at home, but I'll say bedtime, Skippy. I don't need to do that. They're able to self-discipline in that one particular way. Sometimes I regret that decision because I'm not God and I'm not perfect, right? Sometimes I do it too fast. Other areas too, that's just kind of a silly one. Bedtimes are rare these days, by the way. Did you know that? I forget what the percentage of people who have kids in elementary school that have no bedtime. Are you insane? You must be utterly insane. Anyway. Forgiveness is a restoration to fellowship. It is the freedom to live a self-disciplined life instead of an externally disciplined life. And confession puts us in that position. In the decisions that we make in our lives, here, walking around, peripateoing, walking through our lives. Thought, word, and deed, omission, and commission. And you and I, I mean, I've been, uh, I have been going to heaven when I die since I was five years old. Anybody with me? Yeah. I still need this mechanism. I still have not developed the discipline that I need in every area of my life. And I still sin against some of you in thought, word, and deed, omission, and commission. Did you know that? And you guys sometimes sin against me in thought, word, and deed, omission, and commission. Some of you may be doing it right now. That's okay. It's not my problem. That's between you and Jesus. We need this mechanism so that we can experience. I mean, life, the freedom to be self-disciplined is a desirable thing, right? You know, I I have a lot of friends that have... uh, retired from the military. Some of them really liked the military, loved it, right? Some people love it. Some people didn't love it. They did it for the retirement. Nobody complains about not having to move every 12 to 36 months, right? Nobody complains. Whatever reason they're out of the military, nobody complains about that. They appreciate the ability to make their own decisions and to discipline their own choices in that regard, right? Am I wrong? Is there one person here that I just messed up? Because I know some of y'all have been in this spot. You appreciate that particular level of freedom. Confession puts us in that position. Even after walking with the Lord for years and years, we do not develop the power of omniscience, right? Even then, we don't know every way that we have sinned. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't always know. God does not expect us to confess something we don't know about. Right? That would put us squarely in the, in the camp of being a mystery religion. That's when people start cutting their own wrists and bleeding before an altar and dancing and screaming like the prophets of Baal. They actually don't know how to propitiate him because they don't know what they did wrong and they don't know how to fix it and that's who Baal was. Christianity is not like that, by the way. 
God does not have that expectation of you and me or of His children to just kind of go around crazy with our hair on fire, bleeding out of everywhere we can imagine, to try to maybe, hopefully, appease His wrath. God doesn't do that to us. He says that if you confess the sins, our sins that we know about, He is faithful and righteous to forgive them, and and He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And this is how you ought to understand that. The sins that you didn't commit that are causing obstacles to your fellowship, He deals with graciously you confess the ones that you know about and God doesn't let the ones that you didn't know about still stand in the way and you can take his promise to the bank he cleanses us from the ramifications of all unrighteousness If we say that we have not sinned, verse 10, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The last if statement here. Conditional. One of those third class conditions, future more probable. The way I read that on a day like today is that somebody is going to go out here and say, you know what, I appreciate Pastor Josh, but I don't need that. somebody. Maybe it'll be the person that listens to it on Thursday in her pajamas. I don't know. But John has an answer for that. He says, uh, you do need it. If we say that we have not sinned, not only are we deceiving ourselves in this verse, but we make God a liar. God says that we have, and we need this process. And his word is not in us, not receptive to what God's word says about my life and your life, our lives together. It's no longer about deceiving ourselves. It's about calling God a liar. His word says that we do need this process. He says that we do need it. Remember, because he wants us to live a joyful life. Is that something? I mean, that's not foreign to you, is it? Don't you want your kids to lead a joyful life? God wants that. You have a much more limited capacity to provide for your children to have a joyful life on this earth than God does, by the way. It's a very frustrating thing, isn't it? God has provided for fullness of joy on this world through fellowship. To live a life in which we are free to discipline ourselves. To grow in the knowledge of God and his word and intimacy with him. I mean, discipline is designed to be unpleasant. It's unpleasant whether you do it to yourself or whether it is external. But I think we can agree that external discipline is less pleasant. But it brings us to joy as it brings us to maturity. But you know, one of the things that we realize in this world, and I'm just about done, guys, so, you know, whether y'all are waiting for fried chicken or whatever you do for lunch, it's coming. But one of the things that we need to be concerned about, and this, the, a lot of the tumult in the world, a lot of the screaming, a lot of the rioting, a lot of the walking around being offended by everything, you know what is at the root of that is that people are far, far, far more concerned with what people are doing to them or that they perceive people are doing to them than what they are 
than, than being as concerned as they should be with how they're treating other people. This process puts that at the forefront. God does not give me control over how people treat me, does he? He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't do that. What he gives me is a mechanism to make sure that I am cognizant of how I've treated people and to confess that and to be restored from a position of discipline to a position of pleasantness in my life. And one of the, the key symptoms of even people in the church walking, I mean, walking out of fellowship like this is a church issue. You know, a lot of that clamor comes from people in churches that are focused on how everybody is being treated but not being focused on how they're treating other people and the things that they need to confess that they have done so that they would experience fellowship and a life free of discipline. So I want to encourage you to make, make this a pragmatic, practical part of your life. If you are cognizant of a sin that you have committed against someone, confess it to the Lord, not to me. Don't come to my office with a list. Don't come to my office with a list. Do you see a caller? We don't even have that kind of closet. There. But you need to do that. You need to go to the Lord and confess the sins that you have committed against other people. And He's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise. He is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this process uh, that is grounded in this theological truth that you are light and in you there is no darkness at all. Understanding who you are gives us that understanding that we desire and need fellowship with you. We thank you for this, for the opportunity that we have in these verses. Father, we thank you for it and we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, church?